campus of Yale University. This is To Live and Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, screenwriter, film director, documentary producer, TV creator and showrunner, podcast host, and all-around public intellectual Brian Koppelman. You may know Brian as the co-creator of the series Billions on Showtime. Uh, Brian's also written big studio movies like Ocean's 13 with George Clooney, Runaway Jury with Dustin Hoffman and Gene Hackman, and his first screenplay, which kicked off his career in a giant way, was the underground poker movie Rounders with Matt Damon. Now, Brian's best work, you know, especially his film Solitary Man with Michael Douglas, which we're going to talk about, is all about character study, often focusing on very flawed human beings. Part of what makes these characters so interesting is that they don't always get or even seek redemption. No fairy tales, no wish fulfillment. They're often much more novelistic than what we're used to seeing on screen. And they're all extremely East Coast, which I love. Brian has resisted the move to LA and is one of the most notable examples of a successful screenwriter living in New York, 3,000 miles from Hollywood. Brian doesn't just write TV and movies. He hosts a popular podcast called The Moment, where he talks to influencers about turning points in their lives. He's a perpetual guest on other people's podcasts, from music shows to meditation shows to food shows. He writes voluminously on all sorts of topics on social media. He produced a critically acclaimed documentary about Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker. He directed a film about the tennis player Jimmy Connors for ESPN. Brian is insatiable, and I find that really inspiring. His podcast is part of what made me want to start this one. You know, focusing only on movies and TV is a recipe for disappointment for writers right now. Even when you're lucky enough to sell something and it goes forward, everything takes longer than you want it to, and it's almost never as creatively fulfilling as you want it to be. Following your passion, following your curiosity into other arenas is exactly what every writer should be doing right now. And here is the ultimate example of that. Brian Koppelman. Let's do this. When I first spoke to you, I, I told you that um, I just finished making a pilot uh, for USA Network that ended up not getting picked up to series. And you made me feel a lot better by telling me that your first pilot also uh, didn't get picked up to series. Um, and so I guess I'm just wondering about, you know, right now you've got a show on the air, um, but how do you deal with it emotionally when you, you know, just pour so much sweat equity into a project, so much of yourself into a project, and it doesn't go forward? I mean, is it is it like this current script we were just talking about where you just never give up on it and just you just hope that someday it's going to find a home? Well, on the one hand, man, you know, this is the life that we've chosen. Right. Um, on the other hand, I have dealt with rejection so many times and then seen the gatekeepers proven wrong that I imbue them with very little power, very little status, mm-hmm. very little control over my life. So, um, and that's been the case from early on in my life. And so that, yes, could a particular project be stopped by somebody not wanting to green light or not wanting it to go forward? Sure. But I have the ultimate power because I can take out a pen and a pad, or I can open up um, a final draft document that's blank or a Word doc, 
or pages doc, and I can create the next thing. And so I have, um, I have a knack, I have a skill set, and I have a work ethic that allows me to spend the next two hours creating the next thing, which takes a lot of power out of their hands. And so that's one answer to it. Mm-hmm. Another is like the, literally, you know, I've written about this on my blog. I don't post a lot, but BrianCoppelman.com, if you want to uh, see these pieces about when we were trying to get an agent, and it's really instructive. Um, Dave and I wrote Rounders, and there was a young manager named Seth Jarrett who uh, liked it and uh, started sending it out to agencies, and they all rejected it. You know, and and at the beginning of your career, those rejections really fucking sting, and because you believe them. So one guy at one agency said it was overwritten. Someone else said underwritten. I still don't know what any of those terms mean. Someone else said um, they didn't believe it. So you know, they had, everyone had a no one cares about poker. And then I would write down all the comments they said because it was the beginning of my career, and so I was very attuned to it. And then Harvey Weinstein bought the script. Now, at the time, Harvey Weinstein was quite a different person than, than that name sort of feels like now. But at the time, he and Miramax were so important in the business. And Harvey bought that script on over a weekend. And on uh, that Monday, by Monday night, every agent who passed called, and they all had some different excuse for why oh, it wasn't me who read it. It was my assistant. Uh, I had a reader that day, or, you know, I was trying to read it, but my wife had just broken up with me, and I spilled coffee on the title page. Right. So it taught me immediately that they're all full of shit. And if they're not all full of shit, it doesn't matter. It's healthy to think they're all full of shit. Be- because um, who gives you a note shouldn't matter. The quality of the note should matter. So if you can get yourself divorced from just the result, if you can get yourself divorced from just um, the yes or no, and then you can somehow find a way to hear what the note is and then dispassionately evaluate it, decide if it's worthy or not. If it is, use it. If it's not, discard it, and then just plod forward. This doesn't mean that the things don't hurt. Aaron, they do hurt. Yeah. So if someone doesn't make your pilot and you've put all this effort into it, of course it hurts. Of course it makes you take a knee. But I have trained myself to get up again and go, look, right before Billions, Dave and I had a big bomb with Runner Runner and that we'd written. And then um, had we were supposed to be the showrunners of Vinyl, the show that became Vinyl. Oh, okay. And we got fired off of that by our, our hero, Martin Scorsese, we got to work with. And we got fired off that before we ever wrote a word because of um, some infighting at HBO and mm-hmm. It was a crushing blow because we were going to get to work with Scorsese in an, uh, on a show that we were really excited to work on, and I remember feeling defeated. And it's around that time that I started doing that Vine series because what I realized was the thing I'm saying to you now was, but wait a second, I can change my destiny by going to the typewriter every day. And so we had this idea for Billions, and we just started working on it the next day, and we just poured everything we had into it. And luckily enough... And we wrote it on spec, and uh, we were able to set the deal up in a way that if someone bought it, they had to make it, um, or they had to make, you know, they had a specific amount of time within which they had to make it. And we were able to sort of change uh, where we were by doing the work. And that idea, especially because, look, the work that we do, um, although it's taxing in a certain way, it ain't hard, man, compared to the way most people have to earn a living. Mm-hmm. And, um, yes, our precious writerly artist feelings might get hurt but if you look at the world the fact that you can sit and and have a shot to write for a living create for a living and make art for a living is like an unbelievably blessed place to be so for, for me i i although i can get down i'm i am i'm good at limiting 
how much power I give those emotions. Right. No, that, that's a fantastic answer. Um, I guess, you know, when you talk about sitting down at the typewriter and, and you know, pouring yourself into a new project like the spec uh, pilot for billions, um, I guess uh, sometimes I find myself having trouble doing that because I know that with any individual project, the likelihood for me is that it's not going to end up getting made. See, I've never felt that way, man. I just have never felt that way. Like, that's part, I, I can't articulate why to you, but, mm-hmm. I, and I, but I do think it's part of why David and I have been able to keep doing this for so long. I don't think, if I would have been aware of the numbers before writing Rounders, I never would have written it. Right. I think you have to hypnotize yourself. Look, I do certain right. things. You know, I do morning pages every day and I meditate, and I do things to not allow that shit to get in my head. That would be so disempowering. Right. And everything I do is to try to empower Right. So I, I really want to hear about, about morning pages because, you know, I'm, I'm completely fascinated by, by great writers' work habits. Um, you know, lately I just got back from a 19-day trip in L.A. Um, pitching, but now I'm back in, you know, back in New York. And I have found every day I get up, I go to the gym, I um, go to the office, and I return some emails. And by the time I start writing, it's, it's time to go get lunch. Um, I love the idea of you starting out with your morning pages, just being creative first thing. Can you can you tell me a little bit about what they do for you, what they are? Um, yeah, I have to do them to start the day. I, I have to meditate and do morning pages to start the day because I was a blocked person. You know, I, I come at all this, um, this attitude that I have now because I was a blocked writer for so long. So for me, even just getting to write is a victory, is victory enough because it's something I wanted to do. And I was scared to do it for so long. And then David Levine, who's my creative partner, gave me The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, which spells out how to do these morning pages. And um, it's three longhand pages where you don't let the pen come up from the page, like a seventh grade journal or something, you know, in a class, you just write for three pages first thing in the morning. What I found happens is it tips, some, you're on, it tips your subconscious into getting to work. And it just frees you. When you do it for a couple months, you become freer. I, I'm an atheist, and Julia Cameron um, believes in some sort of an interventionist spiritual thing. That, that doesn't work for me. But otherwise, her book is a miracle and really worth reading if you're somebody who has a hard time getting into the flow state because that's the state we all chase as writers. And I found that tool incredibly helpful. And just nuts and bolts, do you, as soon as you finish your morning pages, are you then diving into the work, the pages that you have ahead of you for the day? Not always, not always, because um, because we're making the series, so sometimes I have to then come to set and sure. then go right. But once I'm doing morning pages and I'm in the flow of that, I'm in a head that allows me to then dip in. Hmm. I mean, look, you know, sometimes you're sitting there and you can't, I write the music and sometimes you're sitting there and you can't find the right song and you're, you're you know, you, it doesn't flow, but I, I do find that like when I need to produce pages, I'm able to produce pages. And I wasn't for a long time, but I, I am able to. And a lot of the time now, um, it'll be on the weekends, but I'll, I'll write because during the day I'm on set and I'm managing mm-hmm. that stuff. Though I write every day. I mean, I do write something every day for the show, for sure. And are you, avoid, are you able to avoid being critical of, of the quality of the writing in your morning pages? Oh, yeah, the morning that's the whole purpose of the morning pages is to get the critical voice out of the way because you're not allowed to reread them. Okay. And you're not allowed, you, you're, 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 Aaron, have you ever done them? Never. I'll go read The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Take you 
very limited time to read it. You should do the exercises. It's an incredibly freeing thing. The whole point is you're not allowed to read them. You're not allowed to critique them. You are not allowed to stylize them. They're not for anyone. They're not a diary like these aren't Camus journals. This isn't Somerset Moms, the summing up. This is really you barfing out onto the page, your fears. But it can be sometimes it's just your laundry list. Oh, fuck, I have to do this today. I have to do that. I hate myself. But it's just this act of uncensored um, production onto the page just helps lighten you for the rest of the day. Makes so much sense. And it also just, I I can't tell you how exciting that idea is to me of actually getting some writing done before lunch. Yep, immediately. (laughs) No, no, it's the first thing. I meditate and I do the morning pages in one order or another. And coffee is in there too. I'm I'm not an ascetic. I have to have coffee. (laughs) Um, Tell me about listening to music when you write. How do you pick the music and how do you concentrate with music blasting through your headphones? Well, music is such a key part of my whole existence. So... I can. I concentrate better. I won't put on new music. Like, I won't go to my Spotify new music playlist. But I will... First of all, I... You know, there are a a bunch of people have rules about what you can and can't put in screenplays. I always put songs in my screenplays. So if I know I want a certain song playing in a scene, I don't fill the whole script up with song. I don't want to create a false impression. Um, There's probably no reason to put songs in every scene. But I... If I know there's a song I want at the beginning or a song at the end, um, or there's a moment in the middle that will work with certain music, I will put that music in. And so I'm listening to that. So um, when we were writing episode 11 of season two of Billions, which um, the song Even the Losers by Tom Petty is heavily featured at the beginning and the end, I was listening to Tom Petty the whole time I was writing that script. And so I'll do things like that. So, you know, I wanted to ask a little bit about, though, what makes you feel, when are you creatively happiest during the process of, you know, writing? Is it is it when you're, you know, alone with Dave in a room? Is it when you're breaking out ideas in a writer's room? Is it when you're on set? Is it, you know, blocking rehearsals? When during this giant process do you feel, you know, creatively like, okay, I know why I got into this? Well, one of the best feelings and is the one Tony Gilroy describes is like having a secret. When you've cracked something big in it and you know it's good and you're kind of walking around in that trance state of, um, ooh, ooh, I know how we're going to do this. Oh, this is going to be amazing, you know. And that's so hard to – I mean, that happens once a year, right? Twice a year you you get, like, the good idea that you know is a special thing that you're going to get to do. Mm -hmm. So I love that. No, I really love when writings work most of the time. I I love when you're in that – state that some people call like the zone or other people um, call flow, but when you're both hyper-present and in the ether at the same time and you look up and you've written seven pages and you don't really know how. And there are a few of those moments in almost every episode, but certainly a bunch of them over the course of the season where suddenly I'll, I'll have written something and know, Oh, that's, that's got the thing that's got the juice. And that's a great, that's a great feeling. But but look, the greatest feeling is that I have this cast, Dave and I. And we said writing in a room with Dave. Dave and I, our process is that we outline together, then we write scenes separately, hmm. and then we each rewrite the whole document, and then we get in a room sometimes for one final go through. Mm-hmm. But we're we're writing the scenes separately over, and putting them together in a master document. Um, but the act, man, when I see the actors do the thing. I mean, that's an incredible high, too, and has always been. And I love the editing room because you can really solve your problems in the editing room. Look, this whole process is 
as good a creative experience as I've ever had. I love pretty much every part of making this show. I guess I didn't realize that about your and 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 Dave's process. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, breaking it out, you break it out together with a whiteboard. I assume. I mean, you have a writing staff on Billions, right? We do. And so, how much of your time, you know, as a showrunner, it's obviously very difficult because you're also running production. But how much time are you able to spend in the writers' room? We do it differently um, each time, and we're in the writers' room in the beginning. Then we tend to have meetings where it's the two of us the responsible writer for the episode and our number two, Adam Perlman. And we'll sit, the four people will be in a room and they'll bring it back to the room and they'll think about it and talk about it and they'll come back to us and then we'll kind of outline together Mm -hmm. Um, or we'll beat it out together. The writer will do an outline, David and I will rewrite the outline or we'll note the outline or we'll rewrite it depending on where we are on the season. Right. Um, And then go from there. Right. And you also mentioned... um you know, what what Tony Gilroy talked about um, a little bit on your podcast. And I love the episode of your podcast, The Moment, where you have Tony Gilroy. I actually assign it to my students here at Yale to listen to because I think it's so fantastic. Um, my favorite moment was when Tony said that he needs to be in New York because he needs to walk around feeling special in order to write. Yeah, that's, that's yes, it, that he wants to walk around. Feeling, that's the part of the secret thing is in there where he's talking about having a secret while he's walking around New York City. Yeah. Right. That's, you know, and that's, you know, that's something I find about New York too. In Los Angeles, every asshole has their laptop open at a coffee shop and is writing their screenplay. In New York, you can feel a little bit, people are doing different things. People are three-dimensional. Um, to me, anyway, that's, that's something well, I'm in New York. Here. Yeah, I mean, I've never lived in LA other than one shooting. So I agree totally with and that. So I want to ask you about that. So how, you know, why is it that you've resisted the pull that so many have taken to move to Los Angeles? Do you think your career would be easier? I'm sure your agents at times have wanted you to move to Los Angeles, right? No, my agents have never asked us to move. You got to realize like where our career was and how it happened. You know, our first two movies were New York movies made with New York studios. The, the one thing that we did right away was we made a decision that if someone in LA wanted to meet with us, we weren't going to make that a big burden or a big hassle for them or a big hurdle for them. So if people were, if there was a, uh, okay, that like, for instance, that job, that script that you said was on your desk. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew about that project, which is based on a manuscript. I got that manuscript. I was determined. I knew that I knew what that script would be. So, um, we just flew to LA and we're like, we have to meet the producer of this thing. We have to find a way to get in on it. Hmm. And so I would go there all the time for meetings, but, but because our first two movies happened not super relatively quickly, we were in the flow of the business and when people would come through New York, they would see us. Or if we would go to LA for a week, people would, if not clear their schedules, they would make time for us. Um, we were lucky, man, that our first script got made and got made well. And that really helped sort of change the equation, right? Once you have and I was until we had two movies made, I felt like we were just uh, I think of it as a graph and we were just a lonely dot. But once we had the second thing made, then there was a line. And then I felt like, OK, we're doing this. And I, you know, the kind like half our movies are independent movies. And, the, you know, New York is a great place to be if you're going to do that. Right. In terms of talent, in terms of the people you get to work with, in terms in of... terms of just the energy of the place, too, though, mm-hmm. just what you feel like. And we just wanted to I mean, I wanted to raise my kids. Amy, my wife, and I wanted to raise our kids in New York. Right. Right. Um, 
So several years ago, uh, I told my agent about a movie, uh, a movie idea that I had, and he sent me a handful of scripts to read, all of them with a tone that he thought I should be seeking with my idea. And one of the scripts he sent me, which I absolutely ended up loving, and for a long time kept a copy on my desktop so that I could, you know, reread sections when I was stuck. And that was a script that you wrote with your partner. Um, and it's one that, you know, I told you that I love. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, sure. yeah, the writing process or, or anything about that yeah. project. I asked you not to name the title um, of it. And the reason is that project, which is, and here's a way in which I think it can be, if not instructive, useful in some way or compelling to talk about. Yeah. Remains because of its tone, because of its sort of unity of tone. Look, there aren't that many scripts that you write where you feel like, well, the thing we were going for, we nailed. By its own standards, by our own standards, the thing exists on the page as we'd hoped. Yes. And that is one of the handful of, sc of screenplays that Dave and I wrote um, that I feel that way about. Well, I'm so and glad to hear you say that. And it's um, almost gotten made five different times. There have been directors on it. Um, and right now is the closest it's ever been. Dave and I are the only writers who've ever written on it. We just did another pass on it with this director and have been meeting with the director, and it's casting right now. Oh, and great. And it seems like it's going to get made ten years later. And so... Um, the 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 question the implied question you were asking is when something like that exists and it doesn't get made how does it feel yeah. or to have achieved that thing on the page the frustrations of Hollywood a few things that are positive there um, it is as frustrating as you imagine there are, there are two scripts we've written that um, I, I felt like should have been movies and, and haven't been only only two where I felt like. Um, the process didn't work, that even though the script that was delivered was what was promised and what everybody wanted, it didn't get made. One is called The Winter of Frankie Machine based on the Don Winslow novel, and the other is this one. And but this one, we over the years have been able to work on it again. We have been um, included by the studio in various iterations and attempts. They've never moved off of us. They've always acknowledged that the script worked. It was just a question of what they wanted to make. They wouldn't give it back to us. We tried to get it back a bunch of times to go set it up. We had the ability to go set it up. So it's been maddening over the years because I've known there's this thing that exists that's really um, supposed to be a movie and that isn't. Yeah. But what's been heartening to me is that um, nobody's given up on it. And, and, um, and I've always had the sense that I chased that project. And I'll talk about it again once it gets announced. And it's real. I could give more details because if I say certain things, people know what I'm talking about. But uh, it, it's um, at times been incredibly frustrating how close it's come to getting made. But I think partially, luckily, because David and I have been able to make other stuff because we have the series, I haven't been obsessively, compulsively drive myself crazy about it. I'm so glad to know, though, that it was um, 
on your desk like that. that yeah. That makes me really happy. Oh, good. Yeah. It's one of those, you know, I, I don't know if you do this, but oftentimes if I'm stuck, if I, you know, if I've got an outline in front of me and I'm starting to write scenes for the day and I'm hoping to get a, a few scenes done, I'll go back and I'll read a few of my favorite scripts or just scripts that I have on my desktop to just give myself a little bit of a jolt. And that's one that I constantly go back to because it gives me such a jolt. Um, it's just such a, you know, it's inspiring and it gets you in the sort of the right mode for writing. Um, do you do that at all? Do you ever read other people's scripts before you start writing for the day? Not before I start writing for the day. Um, I do keep a copy of Speed the Plow, the play. Huh. Uh, Dave and I always have on our desk. Interesting. And we will sometimes read it to one another, be, um, <laughs> both as commentary on the movie business and because of the particular rhythm and um, bounce and the way that Mamet is able to make everything rhyme. I don't mean literally rhyme, but the way he makes everything rhyme right. in his writing. In right. that play. Yeah, Sorkin talks about rereading Writing in Restaurants by Mamet a lot. Um, I know it by heart. <laughs> um, are there, is Mamet sort of someone who stands out for you, or are there a few guys or a few people like Mamet who you'll go back to and have stuff memorized? Sure. I mean, Aaron Sorkin is someone also whose work has meant a ton to me, the Coen brothers. Um, and uh, I mean, so many, right? I mean, I'm an obsessed reader, as I'm sure you are. So I'm always rereading or rewatching stuff and know it by, you know, know my favorite things by heart. I'll go, um, I don't watch Polanski movies anymore, but I certainly did watch Chinatown a lot. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with Woody Allen. I won't watch Woody Allen movies anymore, but uh, those movies and the way he wrote certainly informed the way I thought about what you could accomplish with Economy of Words. Um, and uh, I'm sure I'm leaving uh, people out, too. I love Nicole Hall of Center's naturalism. She's somebody I go back to uh, all the time also. But I think David Mamet, because of when I first uh, – and Tarantino. I don't want to give Tarantino short shrift and PTA also. But, you know, be, because of, of, of where I – and Spike Lee. I can't leave Spike Lee out either. Or Oliver Stone, even though I think Oliver Stone is, uh, you know, probably um, in lots of his lost. You know, I haven't liked the movie of Oliver Stone in a long time, and I'm, I'm suspicious of whether he's a good person or not. But uh, I think those early Oliver Stone movies, the dialogue is just – staggeringly great and he took such risks with his dialogue and pushed right up against the edge of what might be understandable you know somewhere between Mamet, the Collins and Oliver Stone is this idea that if you create an insular world with a language of its own but um, you do it with enough confidence and enough entertainment value you can get people leaning in and wanting to learn that language and wanting to be a part of it they will enlist in your vision and I think that David and I took a real lesson from that not in a conscious way, in an unconscious way, but that when we started doing the thing that we do, I think we naturally just started writing in a way that employed um, that idea and deployed some of those tactics. And so if you look at Rounders, that, that's a film that has an insular language and is an insular world and has its own vocabulary. And we, in, we invite you in, but we don't make it incredibly easy for you to get in. And Diner did the same thing, which is one of our favorite movies, yeah. and Barry Levinson. And so that idea um, w was always resonant to us and I think shows up in all of our work. It certainly still shows up in fucking billions. I mean, you know, in, you watch the pilot uh, episode of the show and, and we don't make it particularly easy for you to 
get the lingo, but there is a rhythm there, and eventually, if you're, you start bombing, bombing your head, nodding along and, and catching up to it. And um, for us as viewers, as, as readers, as, uh, as fans, we love that shit, and um, it makes us lean in. And so, hopefully, when we do this, it makes you want to lean in. Right. Okay, so I, I want to change gears a little bit and, and play a clip from uh, your movie that I love, Solitary Man. Um, so, to let's, uh, I want to play the clip and then we can talk about it a little bit. Um, this is a clip that, you know, I mentioned to you. I wanted to play um, to set it up a little bit. Michael Douglas plays a divorced fifty-nine-year-old uh, who's gone through a financial scandal and is now dating a much younger woman. In part because um, her father has connections that he hopes can help him. He's dating a forty-year-old. Right. And, and, and the he's 50 40-year-old now. has a 17-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. And so in this scene, Michael Douglas has agreed to take this 17-year-old daughter of his girlfriend on her college trip to his alma mater. So he's having a drink with her at a bar. And when the scene begins, they're talking about a college guy that she met on campus that day and was contemplating going out with that night. And actually, she's 18. Oh, she's 18. We changed okay. it to 18. Interesting. She's 18. Got it. Very important. Okay, let's play the clip. What you said about... What would have happened in the room? No, it's right. I would have ended up staring at the ceiling all night while he slept like a log. At least in New York, I could go home. Has it always been like that? Okay. I'll say it. Um, my first time, I was 14. And it was, it was okay. But it wasn't, like, incredible. You know, it's never really incredible. None of the guys I've been with really know what they're doing, I guess. Well, why don't you just tell them? You don't really have to say much, you know. You just have to kind of take control of the situation, move them the way you want them to move, take their hands and put them where you want them. And if that doesn't work, then... Show them, you know, yourself. <laughs> I promise you they're never going to forget it. <laughs> yeah, but it'll make me seem like a whore. Yeah, you're thinking about it the wrong way. When you're with somebody that you like, do you want to know what makes them feel good? Well, does my mother know what to do? Allison. No, come on, tell me. Yes, she knows what to do, but... Um... But not like the Russian, right? It's not her fault, you know. She's she's older. Um, your body changes. There's a, a, a thickness when you thickness. Think. She's thick thin. No one over forty is thick thin. Not really. Trust me. But she can get you off. Yeah, she can get me off. Okay. And then at the end there, we hear them starting to have sex. So that is a dark scene, um, which I love. It's so well written. Um, Do you remember? I mean, it was a while ago, of course, but do you you remember writing it? Do you remember a little bit about what went into it? I really do remember writing it. I know just where I was when I wrote that scene. Oh, tell Um, me. I I was just late at night. It was late. I was alone in the office and... um, it was dark outside, and I was in our our office, sitting at this other desk with my feet up and the laptop. I know I was. I remember writing it very, very clearly. And um, 
I was really, there are, are a few things. I mean, I knew when I had the idea for that movie that it would turn on that scene. Hmm. And it was really hard to make sure I got the the stuff that the young uh, girl would say right. And so I asked a few people I knew um, about it and people who worked with me and I would show stuff, especially in that scene. But I'll tell you something really great and really interesting is that that scene used to go on for to another page. And in fact, there was a hunk I can't remember now that I thought was the crucial hunk in the scene, a big run that Michael Douglas goes on that character to finally convince Imogen Poots's character. And we had it in the movie and Ethan Cohn was kind enough to come and watch a cut. Wow. And he watched the movie and he was really complimentary. Dave and I direct, I wrote the movie, Dave and I directed it. And Ethan said, the scene ends when he asks that question and she looks at, when she says, can my mother, but she gets you off. And Michael says, yeah, she gets me off. And then Emmy gives that look to Michael. And Ethan Cohen said, that's the end of the scene anymore. And you lose. And I said, but Ethan, I, the way I wrote the scene was the thing that comes next. That's what made the whole movie happen. When I knew that we could make a movie was when I thought of the next thing. And he said, yeah, that, Hunk was the ladder that got you to the roof of the building. But guess what? You're on the roof of the building now. Kick the ladder away. And he goes, just try it and and then watch the movie and see. You can always put it back. We cut it and we screened the movie for an audience and it made the whole movie play differently. It saved the movie. It made the movie work. That's the movie that's uh, like our highest rated movie on Rotten Tomatoes and it got on Roger Ebert's year-end best list and it got on the New York Times year-end best list and A.O. Scott loved it. And I'm, I think none of that happens if I leave that other thing in there. But that piece of advice about where to end the scene was every bit as important as the scene that I wrote. Wait, why do you think none of that happened? Why is the movie so radically different if you Because it gives the power to Imogen in that moment to make the decision as opposed to her being talked into it. Hmm. And it makes her agenda towards her mother more clear. And that stuff was all there, but what Ethan did was prop that moment up and really make it a, a point. And it, it, it's such a bold, it, the way that, um, you know, it exists now in the movie, the way we just heard it, really does make it hard to like our hero, Michael Douglas. I mean, you never, oh yeah, you would have liked him even less the way that, that, the way that it was originally written. Look, I'm never interested in you, you know, I think this is a bit of Hollywood, is I'm never interested in you liking the characters. Right. I don't give a fuck if you like the characters. Mm-hmm. Are they compelling and fascinated? Can you not look away from them? Can you understand why they are the way they are? Can you understand why the people in the movie like them? Look, the thing I was interested in then, and it's something I'm as interested in now, as you'll see from our show, is why charisma and verbal acuity and a couple of bucks in the bank stand in for character qualities. Mm -hmm. And in the world, why do people give guys like Ben Kalman a huge free pass? Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, certainly when that movie opens up with, you know, Michael Douglas, who's, you know, obviously we're taking our baggage of all the Michael Douglas movies we've seen with us to to watch your movie. It opens up with him going to a doctor and potentially getting a bad diagnosis. We assume that this is going to be a movie about his redemption, right? But you just, you never give it to us, which is so great. It's such a... I just wasn't interested in it. 
man. Yeah. I was interested in something else. And people offered us more money to make the movie if we would have changed the way that it ends. And we hmm. just wouldn't do it. We were just determined to tell this story. Look, it came out of a very personal thing. Um, that first scene in the movie is a true thing I witnessed where um, a man in his 60s was walking and uh, his daughter saw him and his daughter said, hi, dad. And the 60-year-old said, don't call me dad in public because it makes it harder for me to pick up women. And I saw that and it got me so, and I knew the people involved and it got me so angry that I sat down and wrote the first 18 or 19 pages um, the next morning. And because I was like, um, why the fuck does this guy think he can get away with it? And then the second thought was, why does he get away with it? And, and, and so I had to write about it. And, and then this character really came to life in a way that I couldn't let it go. It took me four years to write the script. Huh. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done professionally. Um, and uh, be, because I was so determined to walk this line, to make him compelling without softening him, to make him someone you'd spend the time of the movie with, but without giving you any um, intellectual reason to like him. Right. God, I love that. I mean, there's so many lines in there that I just love so much. You know, when he says no woman over 40 is actually stick thin, trust me, it is such a fucking malevolent kind of line. Brutal. Um, Oh, just so brutal. And it really sticks with you how much you just want to punch this guy in the face. But this is the guy's journey who... I can't tell you how many fucking people have come up to me about that line. How many disgusting guys have been Uh like... That life's the truest thing I've ever seen in a movie. Oh Thanks for finally having someone say Jesus it. Jesus Horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> God, terrible. yeah, because, yeah, and the way Michael Douglas delivers also, it. Michael's performance, man, is yes. unreal. He just doesn't, he too is not looking for sympathy. I mean, Michael embraced it completely. Right. Just totally willing to put himself out there as, as one of those guys. And not just as one of those guys, as this very specific guy who should know better. Right. And can know better. I mean, every performance in the movie, all these actors are just so terrific. Yeah. And it was a ballsy choice for Michael Douglas. I mean, I, you know, he talks a little bit. You were you mentioned Oliver Stone before. You know, he says guys come up to him all the time and say, you know, Gordon Gecko, you're the best. Like they think of Wall Street as, you know, something yeah. to aspire to. And he, of course, hates that because it's a it's a cautionary well, tale. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes. Oh. Obviously, on the show I'm working on now, like, right. there's a bit of that. Right. Did you watch Wall Street bef- uh, when you were writing the pilot of Billions? No, I mean I've, I've, I've watched Wall Street. Right. I mean, <laughs> there's no not a moment in that movie I couldn't quote. To. Right. It's such a good movie. I, uh, the first, you know, the first half of that movie is absolutely perfect. Not right. Perfect in every way. Yeah. But, I mean, I really, you know, uh, every even the littlest moments. I mean, Oliver Stone was. In, as a dialogue writer, then just, just pretty unparalleled. Yeah. And we don't get morality tales like that anymore. Wall Street is just like a straight up morality tale. Might as well. Well, so is Platoon. It's a great one-two punch. Yeah. Yeah. Platoon. And the whole run there, right? And that was also born on the 4th of July and JFK. Yeah. And, and Salvador before that. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, all right. So finishing up here, um, uh, as we go out, I just want to uh, play a clip from Donnie Brasco that you uh, said you really admire. Um, it's not a movie I wrote or worked on a movie I love right so can you tell us a little bit about why 
You love that movie? I mean, so it's Mike Newell directing, it's Paul Tanasio writing. What is it that speaks to you about that movie? Sure. I mean, I could have said Quiz Show because it's funny. I, I don't often reference Atanasio, but he did write two of my favorite screenplays of all time. I love Quiz Show, too. It's to me, Quiz Show and Donnie Brasco are perfect screenplays. Yeah. And this scene, in, and I could have picked a million scenes from Quiz Show. Every time Rob Morrow is on our set on Billions, I'm, I can't believe that <laughs> he's here. Uh, the thing about this scene in, in Donnie Brasco is all the stuff that's unsaid. The little moment when the bartender gives the wine spritzer to Lefty to try to calm him down. The way that Pacino talks about being known and he can, in all the five boroughs, that he can hold his head high. Um, in, uh, in the way Don the jeweler is sucking him in. In the lingo, the, you know, the word fugazi, the word dunsky, there's a specificity of language, but also of gesture. And it's all implied in the screenplay. When Donnie shows him, you want to see a beautiful thing? Here's a beautiful thing. And he shows him those diamonds. And Pacino says, that's, that's your thing. It's a beautiful thing, but that's your thing. You understand so much about the self-interest that these characters have, about their inability to get outside of themselves for even a moment. There's a mirror in the scene that plays the whole time. And, um, and so there's also a music in the writing that's delivered by these actors. I could watch this scene over and over again and get something new out of it each time. Awesome. Well, we're going to play it going out. Um, Brian, thank you so much for doing this. You know, your podcast, The Moment, is definitely one of the inspirations for this podcast. Thanks, Aaron. Um, Really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. You're Don the Jeweler. Yeah. That's some beautiful thing. Why don't you give it to your wife? My wife? How am I going to give it to my wife? I ain't married. You got a girlfriend? Yeah, I got a girlfriend, yeah. So marry her. Hey, you for real? I'm asking you to middle a diamond for me here. Now, all I want from my end is 8000 What I'm saying to you is you should give it to somebody that don't know any better because that's a fugazi, all right? That's a fugazi. How do you know it's a fugazi? You looked at it for two seconds. What, it's a fake? But, yeah, I know what a fugazi is. Hey, pal. You want to see something? I'm going to show you something. There you go. That's something? That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. But it's not my thing. What about this? What do you want me to say? Go ahead, try and sell it. You want to be a dumpster? Give it a shot. Donsky. You call me a Donsky. You know who you're talking to, my friend? Hey, left. Come on, have a spritzer. You want to go embarrass yourself with this thing? Embarrass myself, hey. My family, my children, my mother can hold her head up in any neighborhood in the city where she walks down the block, see? In all the five boroughs, I'm known. Forget about it. I'm known all over the fucking world. Anybody ask. Anybody about Lefty from Mulberry Street. Huh? You pissing up the wrong fucking tree, my I friend. Know, I didn't mean no disrespect. It's a misunderstanding, right? Where you go? All right? Sit down there. <clears throat> well, you, you gonna walk out on me? You don't walk out on me. I walk out on you. You got a car? 
I got a car. Well, let's go get your car. Come on. All right. That was Brian. Um, sorry about some of the technical difficulties. It was a little bit hard to, to hear him and understand him at points. Um, but the guy, I mean, I could not recommend more his podcast the moment, especially the episode uh, where he talks to Tony Gilroy, the great screenwriter. Um, Brian is just, you know, he's passionate about what we do, about writing, about directing, filmmaking, and about so many other things. And I find it just contagious. Um, I am absolutely going to go out and buy The Artist's Way and hopefully start morning pages. Uh, you know, I think it's such a great idea. Um, thanks so much to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. Um, and if you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and give it however many stars you think it deserves on iTunes. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week.